This podcast is proudly supported by Red Energy, most satisfied customers 11 years in a row. Isn't it time you called Red Energy on 131 806? And Prince Wine Store, bringing wine enthusiasts the greatest wine in the world. Gillan McLaughlin has not been strong enough, in my view, publicly. And I think if it doesn't mandate vaccines, it's going to be pretty strong on creating a safe workplace across the AFL. And I say again, Corrie, if you have to be vaccinated to go to sporting events, surely you have to be vaccinated to play in sporting events. Don't poo-hoo FaceTime or Zooms. Gosh, if Carol Wilson can do Zoom, even you can. Carol, honestly, if one more person says, oh, I'm so over Zooms, I just feel like banging my head against the nearest laptop because Zooms at the moment are one way that we can stay connected. This place has everything you want that you shouldn't have to get in a post office. (laughs) All I want is stamps. We went last summer to our local Thai restaurant and they said, look, we're really sorry. We've run out of rice. (laughs) (laughs) Don't Shoot the Messenger podcast with Caroline Wilson and Corrie Perkin. Welcome everybody to episode 188 of Don't Shoot the Messenger on this windy early spring day. Corrie Perkin, how are you? Oh, I'm well, Caro, but just as we're recording on Thursday, I was devastated to hear there are over 300 cases of the coronavirus here in Victoria. So I hope everybody's taking care and I hope everybody's getting their vaccination. It's all about vaccinations, Corrie. It's become a political issue and we are going to discuss it in a moment. Thank you, everyone, for tuning in. We'll be very cheery over the next 45 minutes to an hour. We want to thank our show's sponsors, Red Energy, most satisfied customers 11 years in a row. And don't forget, Corrie, we'll be opening up that wonderful cocktail cabinet. That favourite place of all of us at the moment. Later in our show, thanks to Prince Wine Store. Clink, clink, clink. The great escape, Caro. Look, look. I did have a friend say to me during the week, you, you and Caro sound like a couple of alcoholics. Grog May dogs. I just clarify? <laughs> yeah, probably fair. No, we no, no, it's not, not fair. <laughs> we are not. Somebody said you both seem to be drinking an awful lot this particular lockdown. I felt like saying, hey, sister, look at us last year. But look, really, we, we are not. We, we drink in moderation, but we do... Particularly at the moment, Caro, life is full of so many, so few pleasures that if you do have a lovely bottle of wine from Prince Wine Store, it makes the night worthwhile. Look, it's very funny, Corrie. Um, Before I um, hooked up with you this morning, I had to judge the Clinton Gribus, um, wonderful Clinton Gribus, AFL Media Rising Star Award. And... um, We'd organised a Zoom, myself and Stephen Quartermain and Riley Beveridge. (laughs) And Stephen said, can someone organise how we can do this? And so I sent out, you know, the Zoom invitations. Stephen, believe it or not, I don't think he'll mind me saying, is more of a Luddite than me when it comes to Zoom. And he said, "Um, oh, you know, you've done really well, you know, well done. And we judged the award. And Riley's just laughing because he's young and, you know, thinks probably we're a pair of idiots. Stephen only managed to get the the, um, video on thanks to his wife, Paige. And he said, oh, you know, well done. I said, Stephen, the only reason I know how to do this is because when I have a drink with my girlfriend, (laughs) I have to do it by Zoom. And that's the only way I I can have a drink with them. So it's made me, I can't do invoices, I can't, there's so many things I can't do, but I know how to have a drink. 
and that that, that is why I am more well, technically smart than he is. Anyway, very funny. But Corrie, look, well, a lot Caro, of I, well, Caro, that's a lovely segue to what I wanted to just say because today, being the Thursday, is Are You Okay Day? And although this seems like a, a you know, what is this new marketing message? This Are You Okay Day? I actually, as time has gone on, I feel this is very important, and I particularly feel at the moment. And I just want to say to people who are listening, whether it's today you're listening, Are You Okay Day, or any other day, please touch base with a friend or a family member at the moment during lockdown. Um, I've had a couple of teary chats with family members this week who haven't been doing so great. Um, Just someone might feel the need to chat with you or indeed you might feel the need to chat with someone. Just don't poo-hoo FaceTime or Zooms. Gosh, if Carol Wilson can do Zoom, even you can. Caro, honestly, if one more person says, oh, I'm so over Zooms, I just feel like banging my head against the nearest laptop because Zooms at the moment are one way that we can stay connected. You mentioned the drinks night. Last night, our own personal book club, we all met up and talked about a book. Families are doing trivia nights. Grandparents like me can see the grandkids. It's so important. It is, Corrie, and um, I'll segue again to a very cheery piece of um, housework, homework, I should say, and house, housekeeping. Um, we also, well, we usually do apologies and correspondence, but I've been overwhelmed by the response to um, my pin board at home when I was a kid with David Cassidy on it. And I did have Mick Jagger as well and Daryl Summers. But um, our dear friend Linda Danvers has been in touch. She has indeed, Linda. Uh, so lovely to hear from you. My pin-up was Donny Osmond. Caro's was Daryl Summers, which just still leaves me shaking my head in disbelief about that one. Linda Danvers said, David Cassidy, exclamation mark. Even saw him live at Memorial Drive, Adelaide, 1974. Sigh. It was true love. <laughs> and then Linda's left us a red love heart. Linda, come on. Well, we've had, a, we've had some love for Donny Osmond as well from Alison Dennis, I think. Donnie was mine. No surname required. Um, Puppy love. Never really did it for me. I I think it was something about, you know, Salt Lake City and all that sort of Mormon stuff. Nothing against Mormons, but it was sort of at the time very unusual, the way the Osmonds lived their lives. Anyway, Nick Smith, 64, JPY and Roger Moore. An unusual pair, but, you know, (laughs) I, I mean... Mum still says Yesterday's Hero is one of her favourite songs ever. And Roger Moore and the Persuaders. How much did we love him with Tony Curtis? Oh, no, definitely. And, and Caro, Katie Colcol on Instagram said Jezza was definitely my childhood pin-up. Well, I had a school friend, Meryn Lovegrove, if you're out there, Meryn, hello, all these years later. But she had a thing about uh, Jezza as well. And I do, uh, I do note that people uh, have often said to me, how much they loved Marlon Brando over the years. But that's now we're getting into movie star territory. So that's um, another thing entirely. Oh, gosh, we could have a whole segment on blokes we pinned up on the inside. Peter of McKenna. Doors I mean, we I was teenagers. a Richmond supporter and I loved Kevin Sheedy and Francis Burke and Dick Clay. Peter McKenna. Oh, remember, he, remember when he put a single out, Smile All the While? The record. <laughs> <laughs> Didn't he do Thanks for Just Being You? No, that was Lionel Rose. Corrie, get your sports stars right. Come on. Oh, Lionel Rose did thank. <laughs> let me thank you for just being you and... Um, Pick me up on your way down, which was a, a personal favourite. Anyway, um, just a bit more housekeeping. Our friend Ms. Rulu um, has 
got has weighed in on the Ugg boot debate. Um, her partner, Tony, buckled to Ugg boots after shaking his head about her well-worn black ones last year. He now has a pair and loved them. She claims to have a pair of gold sequin ones from a few years back, which she wore on the plane to greet her brother in LA. Brings them out at Christmas. All I can say is better you than me, Ms Rule. Kim Gosling asks, what was my favourite book, a love story? I mentioned a few times. I think it was I Capture the Castle by Dodie Smith. I'm pretty yeah, sure I that was so. it. But we also did talk about my, or else maybe it was when I said my favourite love story and you agreed, um, was uh, Transit of Venus by yes. Shirley Hazard. Oh, such a beautiful book. Now, Corrie, oh, actually, Transit of Venus is a segue into my book, a very old book later on in the show. But um, again... Zoom and um, remote catching up with people brings me to um, all the events you've been doing lately. And you had one with Julia Banks recently, who was on our show a little while ago. Had We did indeed, Cara, a terrific night uh, the other night. We had over 100, 100 and I think we had 106 or 107 people joined the webinar. If anybody wants to join any of our webinars, we seem to be having them like we're having hot meals at the moment. So you can go onto the website newly named corryperkin.com.au and you go into events and you just click on one of the events coming forward and join in. But we had Julia Banks. Caro, she's very much looking forward to catching up with you and I over summer because she hasn't actually met either of us. All we've been doing with Julia has been remote. But she made a very lots of interesting comments last night, Caro, but in particular, you know, a couple of weeks ago, you and I were raving about Annabelle Crabbe's ABC series, Misrepresented. Brilliant show. Julia was, uh, yeah, Julia was interviewed on that program along with other um, female current and previous uh, former members of parliament. And um, one of the things that she said about, she, she claimed it as an, an absolute work of art, a brilliant, absolutely brilliant show, which you and I agreed with. But she also... Um, talked about the clever editing and she said what she found absolutely amazing is the women from all parties all different political persuasions basically saying the same things and you know how Annabelle edited it all yep so if oh, it was something it was... about you know women talking in the room and being ignored they all said it and she said she found that profoundly important uh, and, and 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 actually really um, galvanised her not only into thinking well I wasn't crazy after all but like we have to do something about um, about the um, you know the gender inequality in federal parliament yeah well I mean we'll talk about that in a moment but um, it was gee that was a great show and, and I just wonder why Tanya Plibersek wasn't part of it was she I think she was sort of the only really... no no she she wasn't Penny Wong, Penny Wong was but not Tanya do we think there's a reason for that? Oh, I would. I would suspect. Uh, I would suspect that. Um, We're totally hypothesising well, here. I, I, <laughs> well, uh, well, we are hypothesising. But my feeling about this, Carol, is that Anthony Albanese is not cutting through. You and I discussed that the other day when we were walking. Actually, he's just not cutting through. Uh, not getting the messages across. He seems a very nice person, but he's just not really leading the way. Bill Shorten seems to have reappeared, which is um, alarming because Australian voters, let it be known, they were not impressed with him at the last election. And there has been a bit of discussion about Tanya Plibersek stepping up into the role as um, federal leader of the Labor Party, which personally I think would be 
a really interesting, interesting move because I think the electorate is ready for change and maybe she is it. That is interesting. Well, we'll talk about the Australian National Summit on Women's Safety in a minute because it brings in some of these topics. But just on vaccination first, um, it's sort of funny, isn't it? The interest has shifted for me anyway, probably because it's better news than the other, from how many positive COVID cases there are every day to how many vaccinations we are and what percentage we are. You and I are both fully vaccinated. Um, more and more younger people who I work with now are getting fully vaccinated. All my One of my children has both has had both. The other two have had one and are well on the way to getting their second one. It's become a big issue in the AFL and... Um, Gillan McLaughlin has not been strong enough, in my view, publicly, but I'm, I'm led to believe that a policy is being formed and it's going to be put to the AFL Commission just before the grand final. And I think if it doesn't mandate vaccines, it's going to be pretty strong on creating a safe workplace across the AFL. And I say again, Corrie, if you have to be vaccinated to go to sporting events, surely you have to be vaccinated to play in sporting events. But it was an interesting um, conversation the other night on Footy Classified. Kane Corns has a, um, a little boy with a heart condition who cannot you know, cannot get COVID. It would be a real risk for him. And he's become a bit of a poster boy federally for children getting vaccinated. Kane feels passionate about this. His former premiership teammate and captain, Warren Treadray, spoke on 5AA last week. And Warren Treadray reads the news. He's like the Tony Jones in Adelaide for, for Channel 9. And Channel 9 is very much pro-vaccination, as is 5AA, as is 3AW, as is SEN, and I, I think that there's going to be a policy formed here soon um, at SEN. And so that it, all very interesting. People are treading very carefully, though, legally, and it is a sensitive topic. Warren Treadray, quite strongly, he just sort of basically spoke about it as being um, an experimental system, these vaccines. He said they were for emergency use only. They hadn't been properly approved. He was very negative about it. Kane was quite passionate about it. I felt Warren really spoke from an area of misinformation, although some at, some of the younger guys at Channel 9 disagreed with me and felt that um, it ha I, I, the, the medications have been approved and some of them are only tentatively approved, Pfizer, for the next two years. But that is par for the course, I thought. Anyway, Kane was quite critical of Warren, as was I. I don't think Warren thought it was particularly fair, but interestingly, he hasn't had a lot to say about it since. And I think... Um, I've got to be careful about getting too frustrated with people who come out and say these things when they're in a position of leadership. But to me, Corrie, it's just the only answer. And I get incredibly frustrated by some of the misinformation that's coming from the other side. I agree with you, Cara. I, the, the interesting thing is the dilemma that so many corporations, and you mentioned the AFL there, uh, this dilemma of what what is our policy and and do we show leadership and should we actually uh, make vaccinations mandatory? What what are our you know what, while we're still respecting individual choice and individuals' rights? It, there are, there are so many sectors in the community that are grappling with this at the moment, starting with the hospitality industry. And I know people are really umming and ahhing. What should our policy be there? Even when I had the bookshop, Caro, uh, this time last year, the big, the big issue for people was, can you ask customers who come in to wear a mask? 
Now, of course, masks are mandatory and they're everywhere, but take ourselves back 12 months ago, there were still a lot of people who absolutely refused to wear a mask. If they come into your premise, your business, do you ask them? Do you tell them? What's your policy? And and I was just thinking about this the other day. There's a whole, there are a whole lot of people, and I'm not saying, I'm not making the generalisation at all that they're all anti-vaxxers, please, I'm not saying that. But there are people in the natural health world, natural health industries, yoga teachers, naturopaths, a whole lot, there's a whole sphere out there uh, who would be, I would imagine, would be naturally inclined to not vaccinate in other circumstances but does is the coronavirus a different circumstance what would be their feeling what happens if you go to a yoga studio caro and you know you you're you might walk into a studio where it is not compulsory but everybody's breathing together close proximity hot yoga which is where germs you know spread what's the policy there would you go back to that yoga studio if they didn't have mandatory vaccination of of, um, of staff working there? I just well, I wouldn't know. at the moment. I wouldn't at the moment because I just can't really... I mean, I've, I'm vaccinated, but I don't feel I can afford to get COVID given all the areas I work with in the media. Or pass it on, Caro. That's the other thing. Or all of that. It on. All of that. And, so um, maybe the government has to actually step up, the federal government, and, and, and start really showing leadership. Maybe we need to be told what to do. I, I just, I find it quite perplexing because I, well, go- well, I think business some, as well. Some corporations are taking the lead like Qantas and, you know, the AFL question is it won't really matter if you can't fly, you can't play. Over in America, the NBA have basically said they've got rules for those players who won't be vaccinated. They have to, you know, train apart from the team, sit apart from the team. There'll be less help for them if they do get sick. Look, in the end, the vaccine passport to me seems the only way out. And um, I feel really, really strongly about that. But I asked um, Zach Tui, the Geelong footballer, who'd just won a semi-final last Saturday on 3AW, whether he'd been vaccinated. And he said he hadn't, but he fully intended to as soon as his season was over. He just didn't want to risk a day or two of being run down while he's playing finals. Craig Hutchison felt that was a selfish attitude to take and he should have, shouldn't have said that. I actually thought it was you know, probably fair enough. But I, then I got a backlash for asking him whether he'd been vaccinated, sort of like asking who you vote for. It's like become this highly sensitive emotional issue. And I can see it getting worse. I mean, it was Melbourne versus Sydney last year and to a degree still this year. Um, and gee, did, did I read the other day that Sydney, New South Wales received a lot of extra vaccines that we didn't know yeah. about? Oh, sensational reporting again by Laura Tingle on 7.30 the other night, Carol. ABC published data which showed that forty-five that New South Wales have been given 45% of the visor doses, even though they have 32% of Australia's population. Um, and, of course, the other state premiers went crackers about this. A couple of great lines by Daniel Andrews, um, particularly when he said, you know, I didn't know that New South Wales Premier Gladys Berejiklian in a sp- is in a sprint while the rest of us are supposed to be doing some sort of egg and spoon thing. <laughs> That's right. Yeah. It kind of took me back. It kind of took me back to my athletic days as a grade one student when the only thing I was good at was the egg and spoon. <laughs> <laughs> oh, tunnel ball was my one. Hey, um, which so which leaders are, you, are getting your votes this week, Corrie? Well, I well, um, that's a really interesting question. I, I don't have a lot of joy to share around with leaders. I've been pretty agitated by our own premier. I've been extremely 
kind of confused about why the Libs at this most difficult time, the Victorian Liberals decided to oust their leader and bring back um, Lobster with the Mobster Man. Um, <laughs> with, with the alle- alleged mob- mobster, and his name is Matthew Guy, Corrie. Um, Sorry, I just always keep, I keep now thinking of him as Lobster Man. Um, um, well, Michael but, O'Brien wasn't cutting through, that's why, and they, they believe Matthew Guy will do better. I was sorry to see that the Deputy Liberal Leader, Cindy McLeish, was also ousted. So um, the only woman in really in their leadership team now is in the upper house. That's Georgie Crozier. So that was that was a bit disappointing. Very disappointing. Labor's Shadow Health Minister, Mark Butler, has been a little more vocal, which has been interesting. And the Labor Party kicked a few goals, I suppose, this week. I guess you could say they kicked a few goals by doing this FOI, which revealed that Greg Hunt had been uh, reticent, to say the least, to engage with Pfizer this time last year. So they found it, discovered a whole lot of correspondence to that. But, um, Caro, look, you know, I'm underwhelmed by all of them, really. I I just, um, the opposite, the federal opposition has just got to start really punching here uh, if they they want to, um, if they want to continue to have the vaccination rollout and various stuff-ups and so on and questions about leadership at the top. If they want these issues to continue into the election next year, the ALP has just got to start making some move on that, some getting some traction. I don't know. But anyway, look, and I, and I do want to hear from you later. I wanted to ask you in six quick questions about the Prime Minister um, going to, to Father's Day in Sydney, leaving Canberra. But oh, it's yes, I've, very... I've got some strong views on that. I just wish this vaccine rollout wasn't political. I mean, surely oh, I it's so important. More. We can just all get together. And it, it was like when everyone started bagging Kevin Rudd because he made some calls and maybe showed off about it. Who cares? I don't care what anyone does, whether they're showing off or grandstanding. If we can get more vaccines here and more people to get vaccinated, really, it should be it should be a part of... It should not be... A partisan issue, but I agree, and I just and you know just on that, Caro. Last night, listening to something on whatever I was listening to, the news, I just I suddenly thought, you know what? I'm exhausted by the politics of this. Just get the vaccine into the areas that need it. Get it into Sydney's western suburbs. Get it into Melbourne's northern suburbs. Everybody, stop arguing and the winning of the race, and just get it happening. I agree. Now, uh, before we open the cocktail cabinet, um, the Australian National Summit on Women's Safety, which, look, you've seemed to be all over and I'm embarrassingly not, it was a two-day summit. Did it achieve anything? And who impressed you? Uh, it, uh, understandably, you haven't been connected, Cara, because you have been up to your neck in football issues. But and, and also, dare I say, this was only two days, sadly. So you could have blinked and it was almost over. But I think the most interesting thing, it focused on a number of issues, in particular the soaring instances of domestic violence in Australia. And if nothing else, if nothing else was achieved, it is now on, it's now firmly on the agenda. It's in people's minds. Everybody is understanding, even the federal government, that things have to happen, things have to move. Um, The Prime Minister um, made a... He was the keynote speaker. Um, Attendees included Grace Tame, Australian of the Year. Brittany Higgins, who actually didn't receive a formal invitation to the summit, was invited by the ACT as a a government, as as an observer. So it was good that she was there. Marcia Langton, um, Professor Marcia Langton, who is an Indigenous activist, um, was very vocal and made some really crackerjack points about um, 
the disproportionate number of women who are who are violated and abused in the Indigenous community. Um, Kate Jenkins, um, you know, the, the, our, our friend, the Sex Discrimination Commissioner, was engaged in it. There were some very good. There were some very good um, speeches, Caro. I was particularly uh, impressed by the Women's Safety Minister Anne Ruston. You know, you don't often hear a lot from her. I think she's one of Scott Morrison's um, quiet achievers. She made some very good points and she seems absolutely determined to keep this on the government's agenda. So, look, at least people are talking, Caro, but, um, yeah, long way to go, long way to go. Well, particularly when Kate, um, with her Respect at Work report, um, saw the government respond to only six of her 12 recommendations. Is that right? Yes, yes. yes. Uh, Kate's, um, Kate has stressed that um, a number of the 55 recommendations may not necessarily result in policy but uh, or, 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 um, or, or legislation, I should say. But, yes, I think that she, um, she would have been a little disappointed by the government just, it, it, I don't know why the government is so reluctant to, it has to be dragged across the line with regard um, if, if people are being sexually harassed in the workplace. Um, why on earth shouldn't it be the obligation of the employers to protect these people? Why should the victim um, be the one who has to come forward in order, to, in order for change or investigation to occur? I don't know, I just remain... I think we should try and get Kate Jenkins on our podcast, Carol. I'd love to have a chat with her. Last time I interviewed Kate, it was when she joined the Carlton Football Club board, but that was a whole other issue. Did you watch Why Women Are Angry, the Lee Sales four-parter? Or... Yeah, I did last week. I loved it. I absolutely loved it. Yeah, well... Oh well, just well, just on that, I, I just I just think women are what the, the, look. There's been a, a, a sort of a confluence of of, of events, if you like, um, with kind of 2021 being this um, sort of unusual moment. Um, we've had a number of different things happening this year. We had Brittany Higgins. Um, allegations of rape at Parliament House earlier this year. We've had allegations of historical rape against former Attorney, Attorney General Christian Porter. Grace Tame, of course, was, an, was announced Australian of the Year earlier in the year. Uh, just, a number of, just a number of key moments. This summit, of course, which we've just discussed, uh, women's marches around the country, the government resurrecting the Respect at Work report, uh, and then the show, the program like Misrepresented, which we mentioned earlier by Annabel Crabb and Lee Sales' four-part series last week on why women are angry. There does seem to be a grand, groundswell of anger. I think Lee did a really good job with the different talking heads that she chose. They weren't necessarily always the predictable ones nor the political ones. Uh, people can watch it on iView. It's, it's the 7.30 show and I highly recommend Okay, well, after all that, Corrie, um, there are a couple of good weighty issues. Miles Thompson is going to join us, and he's got a couple of lovely light spring reds. So the cocktail cabinet for Prince Wine Store, bringing Melburnians the greatest wine in the world, with our favourite wine seller, Miles Thompson, and we've got a couple of beautiful-sounding lightish reds today, Miles. Yeah, I thought we'd go with some some spring spring reds, some lighter sort of reds that are 
nicer for the warmer, warmer sort of weather that we're getting, some of the cooler nights. But, um, yeah, it's perfect for a bit of spring drinking. So the first one has a beautiful name, Legado de Moncheo Ganacha. It sounds... Oh, I tell you what, you know, five points, five out of five for your pronunciation. <laughs> Not really. Is it Spanish, Miles? Miles, please forgive, it, please it forgive my potting colleague. I did, please my, be- I did my best, Miles. I think it's Legado de Moncheo. Moncheo. Um, okay. Fair enough. But, but don't, I, I'm, I'm not 100%. I'll have to double-check that. Um, yeah, look, this is this. We, we, we get this every vintage that sort of comes out. It's, it's, it's a great little garnacha, so that's Grenache in, in Spanish. Um, it's from a, a winemaker called Isaac Fernandez. He's a bit of a Grenache specialist, and he's also the son of uh, the head winemaker at Vega Sicilia, which is one of Spain's sort of most famous wineries. And he gets this from these really lovely sort of high-altitude vineyards uh, north of, of uh, Barcelona. And it's really kind of quite hot, sort of dry, arid, really striking sort of landscape there. But quite high-altitude, so it gets lovely cool nights and lovely fresh acidity. Gets all that warmth for Grenache. And this is a lovely sort of savoury-style Grenache. It's got a bit of that kind of wild sort of herb edge to it, that sort of almost slightly dark sort of red fruit lovely lifted spice and has just a little bit of a bite to it, a little bit of tannin, but just plenty of like lovely sweet fruit. Really fantastic for the money. Okay, and the money being I've miles? really become a... I've really become a... Sorry. Also, uh, $28 for that um, before, before of course, the, the 10% discount for your listeners. Miles, I was going to say that I have become in recent times a bit of a fan of the Grenache. I used yeah. to think it was a little too uh, heavy, heavy for me, but I'm, I'm really, uh, really come around to it. Yeah, look, it's, it's we certainly, for us here at the store, in the last, I guess maybe five years or so, probably before then too, but certainly the last few years, five years I'd say, um, particularly Australian Grenache, it's just really sort of at a next level. It's, a lot of great young winemakers are taking it on and, you know, they're learning how to grow it better. We have fantastic old vines in Australia in particular. So certainly the Grenache out of Australia is really fantastic at the moment. If you sort of haven't visited in a while, it's definitely worth sort of revisiting because we're producing some great stuff here. And then there's some great versions from around the world as well. So you do, uh, we know we've bought both Corrie and I some beautiful Spanish reds and, and whites, but mainly reds from Spain, from Prince Wine Store. You love the Spanish reds, don't you, Miles? It's a real, it's, and they've become a pretty much a sort of go-to area for great winemaking now, in mean, different parts of Spain, obviously. Yeah, it's, it's such an interesting country. There's been so much sort of going on there, a lot of new winemakers um, you know, bucking a lot of trends and there's been a lot of, I guess they talk about a lot of rediscovery in Spain. So old varieties, old blends, ways of making wine, um, even some of the most famous regions like Rioja, there's been a lot of young winemakers and, and more established winemakers who are going back to sort of traditional winemaking from particular villages, really site-specific areas rediscovering old vineyards, such a sort of fascinating process as we see more of those wines come into the country and uh, really conscientious winemakers making some really, really cool, very interesting wines and very different to what we see here from like the Australian sort of wine 
classics of you know Shiraz and Pinot. So a whole other sort of spectrum of drinking for for, what, for for people here. It's really fantastic. So that's a Legado de Moncayo um, at around twenty eight dollars. And obviously, if you put in the M E S promo code. At checkout online, you will receive a listener discount. Now you've got a, an even an even bigger bargain, a Pinot Pinot Meunier. Is that it? Yeah, that's right. Um, so this is from De Bordoli, who you know people people might sort of uh, know them as, as a as sort of sometimes maybe as a, as a cheap sort of cheap bottle shop wine, in which they certainly do make those. Um, but they do make just such a massive range of wines and all of them are just fantastic value they really put out some incredible stuff for the money we're, we're always quite shocked when we see steve weber who's the who's the head winemaker there or or sarah who's the uh other sort of chief winemaker um they make some great stuff and this is a blend of pinot noir which we all know and pinot meunier which is a grape you normally see in in champagne uh, blended in champagne um, and this is just super juicy, bright, really crunchy and spicy. No oak. It's all about fresh, bright fruit. I mean, you could even, you could even, if you wanted to on a really hot day, probably put it in the fridge for 15 minutes and give it a little bit of a chill so you have a slightly sort of cooler wine. It would be absolutely fantastic. So the name and the price, please. So it's the the Bordelli Vinoc is is the I guess the 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 name of the cuvee. Same same. Same, same being Pinot Noir and Pinot Meunier, and it's $21 a bottle. How do you do it for the price? <laughs> and it's called yeah, Same, it's... Same, as in S-A-M-E, S-A-M-E. Yeah, that's right. So Same, Same. So Pinot Noir, Pinot Meunier. It, in, it has in some vintages had, had Pinot Gris in it as well, just a little bit of white wine. So it's Pinot, Pinot, Pinot. So Same, Same. Oh, an unusual name, and it sounds absolutely delicious. Cr- a crunchy wine. I've never heard of a crunchy wine before, Miles. Well, yeah, crun- crunchy, bright and crunchy, just what you want. Okay, well, I think mm, that's... I love that. That's whetted our appetites. Yeah. It'll go well with, um, I think, the recipe you're about to give us too, Corrie, in BSF. Miles, that's terrific. Thanks for joining us again. No, my pleasure. Thanks for having me. And that was a cocktail cabinet for Prince Wine Store, bringing wine enthusiasts the greatest wine in the world. Visit wine, visit Prince Wine Store, I should say, .com.au and tell them that Caro and Corrie sent you. Corrie, I'm going to move straight now, thanks to Red Energy, 100% Australian electricity and gas, to Crush of the Week. I can't wait to hear who your crush is. Um, I... Would it be? It wouldn't be um, Dusty, who seems to have lost um, an alarming amount of weight, Caro, just before you get to your crush. Yeah, lost about ten kilos due to that um, kidney, terrible kidney injury that he suffered. That's absolutely shocking. In Richmond's last good game of the year, it was actually against Brisbane. Um, yeah, he's starting to uh, slowly put weight on again now, and um, it's been a, a very, very frightening injury. Well, let's face it, Dusty's been our crush for three of the last four grand finals. What an <laughs> unbelievable, what an unbelievable player he has been. And I don't know about you, Corrie, but September, October isn't quite the same without Dusty, don't you think? Oh, I, no, I wouldn't be saying that, Cara, but look, anyway, let's just move on to your crush. <laughs> Look, I'm going to. I'm not going to do footy this week. Although I did watch one of the great football games I've ever seen last Saturday night between the Western Bulldogs and the Brisbane Lions. I'm going to go to Hollywood. Well, not Hollywood. Probably more like Ealing Studios, I guess. I've just seen so many shows lately, and we're going to talk about it in a moment with Lily James 
what a gorgeous young actor she is. She is just, she was so wonderful and it showed a new maturity when she played Linda in The Pursuit of Love. The film we're about to talk about was her as a much younger actor. I first She first crossed my desk in that Downton Abbey movie, which was actually quite enjoyable and a great bit of comfort cinema. Well, she was actually in the series before the movie. Was she in the series as well? Yeah, Late yeah, she in, was the, in piece. the series. And she was she was in the series, probably series three or four of that. She came in late as the um, as the Flibbiter Gibbet niece, isn't she? The niece. Yes. Well. Uh, and as soon as she came onto the screen, I remember so clearly, you know, just so clearly, just Coco and I were watching it together and saying to Coco, "This girl is." A star. She just she just grabbed the camera, and she was so beautiful. But she just grabbed the camera. She's a she's a real she's sort of like sort of a young Kira Knightley, I guess. Is that? Is uh, that... Yeah, I'm not sure about that. I, well, I would I would say possibly Kira's a better actor. Yeah, yeah, she is. But I loved her in Yesterday, that film about, you know, the Beatles songs. Yes. You know, the guy sort of is the only person who remembers the Beatles. A rather crazy idea for a film, but I enjoyed it. She was in the second Mamma Mia. Really, really liked her in that. I still haven't seen that. Really? No. I, in fact, that's a, good, that's a good lockdown activity. And we both loved her in The Dig, which was a film we sort of saw late um, over summer. Rebecca was a, a dreadful remake, really, of the famous um, Daphne de Maurier novel, but she was in that. She's just, I, I, I think we're going to see a lot more of her and um, she just lights up the screen with a smile. So I've got a very much a feel-good crush today and that's Lily James. Now, um, BSF, Caro, and uh, thanks to Red Energy for presenting not only our uh, podcast, but in particular BSF, your support, guys, is great. And Caro has a book for us. Well, I do, Corrie, um, but I think we should do the screen first because it sort of segues better into the okay, book. Okay, yes, okay. Now, I mentioned this to you um, the other day on one of our walks. I said that um, I needed an afternoon off and it was a rainy, miserable day and we lit the fire at home and watched the Guernsey Literary and Potato Peel Society all over again with Lily James. And, I look, I love that book. They changed the story a little bit for the film. The story, another story of the Channel Islands during World War II. But this is obviously a, a post-war... It's set in post-war England and it stars Lily James who goes over... goes goes over to... Um, is it Guernsey or Jersey? Yeah, Guern Guernsey. Guernsey, that's the name of the book. Hello. Anyway, um, you had never seen it. I had not. Carol, I was a huge fan, of course, like many, of the 2008 book by Annie Barrows and Marianne Schaefer and uh, one of the things I loved about this book uh, look at just for those who haven't read it it starts in 1946 in London there's a London-based writer who has an interesting own backstory herself um, she starts uh, for whatever reason engaging in these letters back and forth back and forth with one of the residents on Guernsey and little bit by little bit the story comes out of his war and his companions' war and this peculiar little group they started called the Guernsey Literary and Potato Peel Society, Pie Society. And Which was so sort of intrigued. a book club, wasn't it? Well, it, it was, was a, a little. Club. It was a book club, but it didn't begin as a book club. It inadvertently, and, that, and that's part of the backstory, how it became a book club. But um, 
the the character Juliet decides that she uh, there's a story here and she decides that she must go over there and the book had enormous drama I thought it was done through a series of letters and diary notes and the drama occurs because what became very evident uh, early on was the um, the anguish and the sense of abandonment that the people of the Channel Islands felt toward the British government when the Germans were coming, the British took off back to home base and they left these communities to, uh, which were German occupied all throughout the rest of World War II. And it was difficult, it was dangerous and uh, these were highly, highly anxious times for these islanders. Now. Did that come through in the book? Not necessarily. It was a little bit like, oh, Lily James in a pretty outfit is skipping off to have a lovely holiday on the lovely islands and there she meets the best-looking pig farmer I've ever seen in my life <laughs> and lo and behold, they fall in love. It's a, look, yeah, it, and it's a love story, but it's also a tragedy. Um, it involves a German soldier, as does The Girl from the Channel Islands, the book I reviewed um, a few weeks back. It's made me sort of obsessed about what went on. I mean, it was such an odd time because England was occupied, but before, when everything started going pear-shaped, basically the British allowed those, those Channel Islands to be overtaken. Well, the Germans just basically moved in, didn't they? and made yeah. them their own. And that was a part of their advance towards England, which, as we all know, was ultimately unsuccessful. But once they took over France, they then went for those islands between England and France. They took all the islanders' food. They took their cattle. They took their pigs. They took all of their livestock, all of their produce, and they made life, you know, it was a cold and miserable time on those Channel Islands during those last few years of the war. Getting back to this movie, and I don't mean to poo-poo it because I did really enjoy it, I have to say. And what kept me going was, one, the scenery, two, the outfits, particularly Lily James. I mean, how many outfits can someone have straight after the war? Anyway. Well, she's obviously the, uh, quite wealthy. I mean, she obviously comes from a wealthy background because her and, parents but the, died but it were, the and it, were, it was the acting performances, Carol. The acting performances really uh, floated my boat. Lily James was terrific. Matthew Good as Sydney, her, her publisher. Gay, yeah, her gay publisher. I adored literary agent. I just adored him, and Penelope Wilton, who as Amelia, who has suffered enormous tragedy at the hands of the Germans. She actually, you'll recall, was Isabel Matthew's mother in Downton Abbey, and she also. I remembered when I was watching her, she played. Remember Bill Nye's rather dour boring wife in the Hotel Marigold thingy, Bob, Marigold yes. Hotel. yep, and she and was in she, Afterlife. She was fabulous in that. She's a lovely actor. She, I thought she did a great job, a really terrific job. And the other one who I adored was the uh, the eccentric character played by Catherine Parkinson, the one who was making the sly grog. Um, and yep. I remembered her as being uh, one of the Doc Martin um uh, receptionists. So, uh, you know, I did enjoy, I have to say, I did enjoy the, um, the the acting a great deal. And most of it, Corrie, believe it or not, was filmed in Cornwall, which is why That's exactly right. it looks so beautiful. Well, anyway, my book, and it, it is a nice film, and if I, I think you can get it on Prime Video, Prime Amazon or something at the moment. It's a really lovely, feel-good escapist film, um, even though it is obviously very sad as, as well as being happy. But Mum 
has always said to me that that Guernsey Literary and Potato Pill Society, she said, well, that's just a copy of a much earlier book written in 1951 by Gerard Tekel. Now, Gerard Tekel is an Irish writer, and Gerard is with a J, J-E-R-R-A-R-D, Tekel. He wrote a book called Appointment with Venus. And Mum's always talked about this book, and anyway, she found an old copy, which she lent me last week. I read it in a few days. It is so enjoyable. He's written a lot of books about a lot around World War II. He wrote Odette, which was probably his most famous book about the spy. But this book, Appointment with Venus, is about the smuggling of Alderney cattle, the true story of Alderney cattle onto mainland England during the war, particularly the prize pedigree cattle, the ones that the Germans wanted to take back to Berlin and other parts of Germany. But this is based on a fictional Channel Island, I think called Arundel or something like that, which is not far from Jersey, sorry, not far from Guernsey. And it is a, it's a wonderful story. It's a when wonderful... Was it written? When did you say it was written? 1951, set during World War II. It was also made into a film which starred David Niven and Glynis Johns and Kenneth Moore. Oh, my goodness. And it, it actually, it was remade in 1962 as a Danish, by the da- a Danish production company, as a Danish film. But it's basically about a spy mission to, well, it's on two levels. But on the top level, it's to rescue a prize pedigree cow called Venus, who is about to give birth. And this lineage is about to end because um, the sire has died. And so there's only Venus and her baby, and they know that she's going to have a boy because it's been conceived at a certain time of year. Anyway, this English spy called Uncle George gets one of his best men. to it, The mission it involves submarines. It involves a local establishment on the island. It involves a good German and a lot of bad Germans. It involves a heroine. It's a love story. It is a very easy read. It is so enjoyable. I don't even know if you can still get it. It sounds like there are comedy moments in what is a very dark time. Exactly. And it's, again, about animals. This island is fictional, but it's not far from Jersey or Guernsey. And, look, it's just a lovely story. Appointment with Venus by Jerry Jekyll. Oh, good tip. Good tip. Now, um, we've gone... We're being very Anglophile at the moment, aren't we? Actually, before I move on to food, can I just give a plug? That was an old book. There's a new book that's just come out. Oh, there's a book with a photograph of you in it. I meant to say that earlier. With several photographs of me in it. Oh. Or two, in fact. (laughs) Are you happy happy with the photos? Happy with the photos, even happier with the book by Sophie Cunningham and Peter Wilmoth. It's called Wonder, celebrating 175 years of the Royal Botanic. Not botanical, Corrie. Exactly. Royal Get it right, Bo- Caro. Royal Botanic Gardens, Victoria. Um, oh, it's a beautiful book. It's a beautiful book. Tell me book. about it. So they've just they've written essays or you've written, the contributors have written essays? What well, happens? Well, it's basically um, there's different groups. There's the visionaries, those who, um, visionaries involving the gardens, past and present, knowledge keepers, those who know so much about it, the sentinels, 
and those who've you know really supported it, people like Joan Dowling, Joan Darling, I should say, Joan Darling, Caroline Briggs, um, Lady Primrose Potter, Janet Calvert Jones, and Penny Fowler, and I come under the um, headline of storytellers, basically Melburnians and their memories of the Botanic Gardens, ranging from Frank Van Stratton, who was my husband's first employer, Michael Veach, and Kevin Sheedy and Sally Brown. So very honoured to be asked wow. to be part of it. Um, it's a beautiful book. It's an absolutely beautiful book, and obviously, it's one of the most beautiful so, places so in the world. So, tell me what. So, just give me a quick, you know, elevator pitch on your take on the botanic gardens. What you said about them? Well, as you know, I went to school right opposite the botanic gardens, and we were always told we could, we were allowed into the gardens, particularly by the time we got into HSC VCE. But there was one part of the gardens we were never allowed to go to, and they were the Temple of the Four Winds, and we never really knew by why, but. Bad Why? things happen there. So, in fact, um, when I was photographed, um, I was what actually... What on earth? What on earth well, happened I, I there? Think, I think there was sort of bad men and things like that. Anyway, I was photographed there by Lee Henningham, who was um, a copy boy in, photog- in, in the picture department when I was a um, copy girl in the editorial department at the old Melbourne Herald. So it was quite funny. He took my photo there last year during COVID. And, um, oh, look, I also remembered Mum taking us to Music for the People and the Seekers, you know, which obviously had that world record crowd at the My Music Bowl. Um, Mum taking us to see President Lyndon Johnson back in the days of All the Way with LBJ and how the protesters threw blue painted him. And they didn't get him, but they got my brother and we had to go home and Mum had to scrub my brother's face and windsheet her with turpentine. I know, extraordinary. <laughs> um, and I, you get a mention, Corrie. Oh, do I? Why? Well, you know, the Women of the Age Sport Department, how we have our oh. annual Christmas lunch every year at the Botanic Garden. Oh. And, I, and you're often a special guest. Oh, and, you know, it's been way too long because, of course, we didn't get to do that last year. We didn't, but we will do it again sometime soon. Anyway, look, it's a beautiful book, so there we are. But getting back to our Anglophile moment, we've decided to relive or revisit Jamie Oliver because he's back. Well, he is, Caro, and I'm holding up to the screen. Of course, no one can see it. Jamie Oliver's new book, it's called Together. Now, we, he has been a little inconsistent, Caro, with books in the last few years, in my view. I wasn't a huge fan of the seven ingredients or the five ingredients or whatever those books were, but I am a fan of this one because what Jamie Oliver has done here is he has embraced the lifestyle that Australians have been, the way we have been eating and entertaining for years, which comes very much from our European and Asian backgrounds of putting a whole lot of food on the table and everyone helping themselves. But he has really embraced it with these different chapters of incredibly accessible and delicious, yummy uh, meals. There's the, um, which would be really appealing to certain people in my family, the taco party, there's the brunch party, there's the last-minute feast, the garden lunch, elegant simplicity, autumnal fair. It goes on and on. But um, as the canary down the coal mine in the culinary sense for this podcast, knowing that we had BSF coming up, I decided I'd better cook something quickly. So a couple of nights ago, I made orzo pasta, broad beans, herbs, sweet tomatoes and harissa. Now, there was no orzo pasta at the supermarket, so as, I, as is my wont occasionally, I text 
our friend of the podcast, Jeff Slattery, and journalist and food gourmet uh, cook chef and cookbook writer. And I said, there's no orzo, what should I get? Um, so I ended up with Rossini, which worked just fine. And Isn't it Rizzoni? Um, uh, oh, Rizzoni. Sorry, yeah. what did I say? Rossini. Like oh, sorry. A, a, a cross between <laughs> Grassini and Rizzoni. Yes, sorry. They're That's exactly my... the same. He's right. Yeah, that, is, exactly that, is, that is my error. So you just make this with harissa, cherry tomatoes, a bunch of spring onions, a bulb of garlic, lots of herbs and frozen broad beans, which I used if you can't get them in season. And this was absolutely delicious. Miss Jane will put the recipe on the show notes. But Coco also made this book, my daughter, uh, made this recipe, my daughter, and we both agreed that Jamie has not given us enough liquid to work with. So we would suggest that you add a bit of water to this recipe or chicken stock. Um, and I would have also, and I did when I served it, I added lemon because at the moment I'm, there are lemons everywhere. But I felt it just needed that bit, little bit of sharpness to it. But it's absolutely delicious for a, a, a midweek dinner or uh, we thought it could work on a platter with um, some barbecued lamb or barbecued chicken on top. It's very pretty and the broad beans are great. It's a terrific little recipe. So we will have that on the show notes. What about you? Well, I, I did something that my daughter Clem, I also was a collab with Clementine verbally. She has made this breakfast, this Jamie Oliver breakfast, I reckon about 30 times. And it is so delicious. And a lot of the same ingredients, Corrie. It's basically called baked eggs in popped beans. Sort of like one of those egg um, bean dishes, except it involves white beans. You basically get 250 grams of different coloured ripe cherry tomatoes, half a lemon, extra virgin olive oil, basil, a can of cannellini beans, white beans, good pinch of fennel seeds, two large free-range eggs, two slices of, sea, of whatever your favourite bread is, sourdough, sourdough or wholemeal or whatever, and ricotta cheese and balsamic vinegar. Now you, Sounds great. You basically serve the beautiful toast with ricotta on top and the egg bean mixture, and it's all in the show notes, is served alongside it. It is the most beautiful, colourful plate. It is the most beautiful, healthy breakfast. I mean, if you're on the no carbs, I guess it's not so great, but you don't, maybe you can just ditch the sourdough Oh, lash out for the day, I say. The egg bean tomato, it's not too sort of starchy. It is a, the fennel seeds just make it, as do the balsamic vinegar. It is the most, it's basically cherry tomatoes, ricotta on toast. With, a, with beans as well. Absolutely delicious and really easy to make. Well, Carol, I have to say that um, when I text Slats at the supermarket with my pasta issue and he, um, he said, you know, what's in the recipe? And he said he would prefer that we use Roma tomatoes than cherry tomatoes. So that was interesting because they, particularly at the moment, they're coming, well, they're not really coming into season, but you're more likely to get a, 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 a more flavoursome tomato out of a Roma than I think probably the cherries. Yeah, and I, I reckon the baby Romas are the guys. Yes, but, I agree. And if you can get a mixture of all at them with some yellow and some orange and even some green, absolutely delicious. Anyway, we love Jamie 
um, I, I thought his 15-minute meals were a complete con too because it was always half an hour and then another half an hour to clean up. But And his restaurants obviously have had a bit of a downward turn in recent years, but he's back in a cooking sense. I actually saw him on Jamie, um, I'm sorry, Graham Norton the other night, and he was pretty impressive too. So um, they're two really good recipes. And just as a side note, I can't... Um, I can never find also in the supermarket. It's always risoni, and they're sort of exactly the same. Well, uh, look, I, 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 I would tend to agree with that, and I think that um, sometimes when you're walking around a, a supermarket bewildered, just uh, just use your phone because there are lots of resources. If you just type into Google what's a substitute for something, it, Google will always come up with a good answer. But in my case, I had Jeff Slattery. Yes. So, like that handy. lovely girl in the ad who goes shopping for the old lady. You know that You know that ad? No, I don't know that oh, ad. Oh, it's gorgeous. And she's Googling and Googling and she turns up anyway. It's a lovely ad. Now, Corrie, that was BSF for Red Energy, powered by Snowy Hydro, a leader in renewable energy. The number to call is Red Energy 131 806. Give them a try. They're fab. What are you grumpy about, Corrie? I'm grumpy about road rage during lockdown, Caro. I've Another auto-related. <laughs> yes. Well, it wouldn't be. It wouldn't be. Don't shoot the messenger without me having uh, having some sort of gripe about traffic. Caro, um, this is this. I'm I'm reading this on behalf of a friend of mine who would, doesn't want to be mentioned by name. So I'm going to call her Audrey, not her real name. So Audrey, a couple of days ago, uh, yesterday actually, uh, was getting into her car. She had her bag and her takeaway coffee. She put her takeaway coffee on the top of the car. She opened the door, threw her bag in, got her cup of coffee, went to get back in the car, closing the door. A bicycle rider went past and yelled at her, Shut your effing door. Something like that happened to me last week. So Isn't that she, funny? Her first thought was, I'm guilty. And then she realised, no, I'm not, because he wasn't... I didn't open the door in front of him. I was actually taking the time with the coffee cup and that whole thing. That probably took a few seconds. So he was coming up to her. He would have seen this. As she said, this is no excuse, mind you, but as she said, there were no trams, no traffic, no rain... A shiny day. He could have actually veered around it while she got the coffee cup off the roof. But anyway, so they're going in the same direction, right? Who does she pull up next to at the traffic lights? The so cyclist. He, so he is on the left of her, so the passenger window, and she wound it down and said, excuse me, but mm. people do have a right to open their door. Mm, I wouldn't and, have engaged if I were her. Well, you're right, Caro. Because you know what he did? He slammed, he got so angry. And he, he, first of all, he said to her, um, he slammed her car or something and said, you know, take that, you effing silly bitch. Slam, what then, do you mean slammed her car? Oh, kind of sla like hit, his, hit the car, hit the car with his oh, hand, yeah. like a big thump. Oh. And she said, excuse me? And then she said, oh, for goodness sake, why don't you just... F off, fatso. She got really angry because apparently he was slightly overweight in his, in his um, life. She, she has done the wrong thing engaging. With and then, bloke. but then, Carol, he broke her passenger rear vision, the external rear vision mirror. He broke it and she was then shaking with rage and fright. And 
she just and he sort of went off and as he rode off she noticed that in his backpack he had a white fluffy dog I mean who does oh, that I thought you were going to say a gun <laughs> so so she rang me she she got the she said thankfully the mirror to be repaired didn't cost a lot of money but maybe she'd feel differently if it but she just said what was all that about well of course I said you shouldn't have really engaged no with I never engaged with said, those psychos. she said I just wanted to I just wanted to ask him was everything all right? And excuse me, I do have a right to open my door. She felt that she needed an explanation anyway. Bad move. But honestly, why can't people just calm down at the moment? Don't we have enough anxiety in our lives? Well, sadly, even pre-COVID and pre-all of this disaster, I'm afraid road rage was a big problem. And Melbourne is one of the most grumpiest towns of people on the road. My, a lot of my overseas friends can't believe how horrible Melbourne drivers are, and I absolutely agree with them. Well, you know, my friend, my friend Audrey is now um, sent sent around visual pictures to all of us about a, a slightly overweight man in black lycra, who's who has a little white fluffy dog in his backpack. Well, I would not engage with him if I were her ever again. I know it's your turn to be grumpy, but can I just mention, as a sign of the times, I dropped into the post office this morning. Um, I know this sounds very old-fashioned, Corrie, but I wanted to buy some stamps. Do you want to know what they said? <laughs> Sorry, <laughs> we don't have any. I said, what? I said, are you joking? I, I had a bit of rage myself. And this lovely wish, she said, look, I'm sorry, we, we ordered them three weeks ago, but they haven't arrived. I said, but you're a post office, you know, it's I can buy business. a fluffy toy, I can buy cards, I can buy magazines. This place has everything you want that you shouldn't have to get in a post office. <laughs> All I want is stamps. She said, I know, look, it's, there's been an issue with the delivery. I, I said, I just can't believe that. She said, I can sell you um, in, uh, international stamps, but I can't send you the dollar ten stamps. Then you might say, "Why do you need stamps?" I do occasionally write letters, and oh, I we do... do need stamps, Carol. Of course, we need stamps. That's like going into a bookshop and saying, "Oh, can I have a book?" Oh, actually, we've run out of books. <laughs> it was like the night we but went. But we have writing paper. We went last summer to our local Thai restaurant, and they said, "Look, we're really sorry. We've run out of rice." <laughs> <laughs> They gave us all this extra roti bread or something, and we're going, who runs out of rice? <laughs> anyway, the stamps... No wonder, business, no wonder some businesses are in the crapper. Honestly, oh, Christine Holgate, come back and get this sorted, woman. Oh, well, yeah, she's got her own issues on the Collingwood board, but that's another story. Anyway, that was grumpy. I'll have okay. to see elsewhere for the stamps. It's time for six quick questions. You know, we Corrie. could actually we could actually do an entire show on grumpy. I reckon, <laughs> don't you? Um, my question to you, Caro, is: Should the PM have crossed the border for Father's Day? Look, I had no problem with this. I thought it was a massive overreaction. He had special permission. He's in Canberra. He's doing a special job. He is the Prime Minister of this country. He had a permit. Carol, he... it's the cover-up. It's all about the cover-up. Oh, yeah. I, look... As Nikki Sava said in your paper today, there's just so... it's another instance where he just doesn't fess up about what he's doing. If I... Well, if it had been 
out in the open, I don't think anyone would have a problem with the Prime Minister who works bloody hard, let's face it, whether you agree with what he's doing or not. No, I, 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 I have I mean, no of problem. Of course he should be able to see his children on Father's I have Day. No, I have no problem with politicians, and they do have an allowance that they are allowed to travel, and I have no problem with the Prime Minister who is working hard to save the country from the coronavirus, you know, going home. But he should have actually made it... Uh, he should have made that news available, I believe. It's the process, not the not the actual incident. I thought itself. there was a photograph. I sort of didn't have a No, that was an old it. photograph of a couple of years ago, Father's Day. Oh, OK. Well, you were closer to it than me, but I shook my head and thought, gee, we're tough on people at times. Corrie, what's your verdict of Abba, Abba's two new songs and the Voyage um, concept? I think the Voyage concept is fantastic. I, I just am so excited by this and bringing to life again uh, ABBA um, with with a new album that's due out soon but they have released uh, last week they released two songs I Still Have Faith in You and Don't Shut Me Down It's a very moving song that one I Still Have Faith in You I see and their tasting clothes hasn't got any better <laughs> Oh, meow. Saucer of milk for you. No, well, no, well it's, all, it's obviously part of their shtick, isn't it, that they have these weird sort of outfits. But Well, there's a, bit of, there's a bit of Eurovision about it, but, look, I really loved it. Um, the, there is actually, if you want to look at the two songs, they're available through Apple Music and Spotify and all of that kind of thing. The video, Carol, which I urge everyone to have a look at, and you can have a look at it on Instagram through ABBA, or Abba Voyage, I think it's called. Um, the video for I Still Have Faith in You is terrific because it, it features all of this nostalgic footage of the band over the years. Three million, uh, no, over a million people viewed it in three hours, including myself. Um, lots of footage of them in Melbourne, Caro, at the, at the Melbourne Town Hall greeting thousands of people who had gathered in Swanson Street. It's well, we so sort of lovely. discovered them, really, didn't we? We were the, you know, the... They, they even wrote a song about Australia, didn't they? Well, Tropical they Loveland. They haven't forgotten. They haven't forgotten in this film clip uh, the the power of, of Melbs. It was very exciting. Anyway, I can't wait for the um, album to come out in November. And I tell you what, if I could get to London and get to that ABBA Voyage Stadium that they've built and see the virtual band come to life, I would be there with my bell trousered flares on. Gee, they've stood the test of time. Oh my God, they sure, sure have. Anyway, um, Caro, AFL Night Grand Final, do you think this concept is here to stay even after 2021? Oh, this debate goes on, doesn't it? Well, um, my colleague on Footy Classified, Eddie Maguire, thinks it's crazy that it's not here to stay. I still believe in the afternoon grand final. It's one of the lovely anomalies of our sport. It's a great tradition. I don't think we need a night grand final to get the extra ratings. I think it's overblown by people who say, you know, we have to finish ahead of the NRL grand final and they're at night and we need to rate more than them and Amazon and Google will pay more, etc. I think an afternoon grand final is a wonderful Melbourne and Australian tradition. I understand this year why it's at night, particularly because of the WA time difference. But no, I don't believe it is here to stay, Corrie. Um, and from that, the topic of footy in September will go to spring. And you've got a spring GLT. I have two, Caro. The first one relates to roses. As you know, my garden here at the moment is more of a native garden. But in the, back in the day, I used to grow roses 
Uh, oh, my goodness, when I think of my rose gardens, I've, I almost weep. I miss them so much. Uh, my big tip is pick your, cut your roses after 3 p.m. in the afternoon. Um, this is when the roses have the highest food reserves and they will give you uh, last longer as cut flowers. And my second, which I was actually doing this morning, Caro, cleaning cobwebs. Do it now, everyone. There's a lot of spinning got been going on in the last couple of weeks. Lots and lots of spinning. And you don't want to suddenly find something scary in the corner of your bedroom when you least expect. There is an old wives tip. Spray peppermint oil in the corners of your home because spiders and other insects absolutely hate the smell and taste of peppermint. So there's a little tip for you. I smashed a huntsman the other day um, next to my fireplace. I know. You You don't admit that on air? Well, what am I meant to do? Lift it up carefully and put it outside? Like when I go walking with you and you pick up snails from the road. Corrie picks up snails and puts them back, on, back by the side of the road. And, and I had a go at you about it the other day and you said, well, what am I meant to do? And I said, well, you don't have to smash it, but you don't have to pick it up. Just leave no, it. No, no. Well, a car tyre would go over it. And as I said to you, they're good for the circle, the circle of life, the ecology of the garden. Even eat, though people say they hate snails, they're I eat my good. basil leaves. They're very annoying. Um, oh, well. oh, well, you know, bad luck you. Now, um, what's your spring GLT? Kill all the snails in the garden. <laughs> oh, no. Well, I, I probably would with my snail bait. But, no, I've discovered wild garlic, which I've never used before in cooking. Oh, where have you been? Well, I know. Clementine put me onto it again. They sort of look like snowdrops or a white a version bit. of... But you can eat them. That's right. You yes. can eat them. We've had them for years. Little white bells. They are so... Miss Jane's nodding furiously here. <laughs> They're growing prolifically around where I live. They are everywhere. I've sent you a photo, Miss Jane, so we can put it on our show notes so people know what it is. What Clem does is she, you pick them like flowers, just put them in a jug, and when you want to use them for cooking, you chop off the bottom bits, like the stems, into very, very thin bits like you would chives or something, but they're thicker. Throw that into your pasta or risotto or whatever you're cooking and then garnish your dish at the end with the bell-like white flowers. Oh. And you can eat the garnish as well. Absolutely beautiful wild garlic. I don't know whether garlic. I'd be eating the actual flour, but certainly the stems are great. Oh, I did the other night. They were delicious. Anyway, from spring to food packaging, what food packaging initiative really caused your brow to furrow this week, Corrie? Well, I lashed out and bought a packet of Alter Eco chocolate, which I've never had before. It was actually really delicious. I think there was mint or coconut. What's Alter Eco one. chocolate? Alter Eco is a brand, two words, oh, Alter, okay. and then ECO, so it's a brand. And on its packaging, Caro, it says using classic grass-fed milk, causing me to wonder what other kind of milk is there. And then they say on their website, because I just thought, this is wacko. Miss Jane's got her hand up here. You've got to, you've got to let her interject. What do you want to say, Jane? Corey, some some farms like basically just feed cows on feedlot stuff. They barely ever get into a pasture and they're fed on grains and byproducts from the food processing industry. Oh my god, where Come have on, I Corey. been? Come this on, is Corey. outrageous. Jane's horrified. Well, even, be- even, I, even I know about grain It's now fed. become a marketing tool. So on their website... Well, that's fair enough. Said, ...the best chocolate deserves the best ingredients. That's why we only use the highest quality grass-fed milk from open-pastured cows in alpine valleys. 
Not even in the Wimmerack Arrow. We have to go to Alpine Valleys to find this. Well, you you bought the chocolate there, I say. <laughs> That's it. That that is interesting. I mean, anything. It's milk-fed veal. Gra- or we can, we shouldn't really be having that grass-fed milk. I'm not surprised that. Um, does the chocolate taste any better? Was it nice chocolate? Oh, well, as I said, it was absolutely sensational. But I didn't, stressing that I didn't buy it because it said grass-fed milk. But when I got the package home and I saw it, I thought, oh, well, there's that. There's a new invention. Gosh, I hadn't, th- hadn't thought of that before. <laughs> On that note, we'll back oh, thank next goodness. week. I feel like I've been very grumpy today. Um, no, well, I mean, my, my remembering of the stamps really did, um, that did grind my gears, I've got to say. But the wild garlic cheered me up. And it's a bit hard not to be cheered up when you actually wander outdoors and check out how beautiful and things are And all we ever want to do, all we want to do, Potties, is grind her gears. <laughs> I think I just found the title for our episode, Miss Jane. My daughter always says that. That really ground my gears. And Anna, Anna from the Op Shop says it too. Thank you to our podcast supporters, Red Energy, 100% Australian electricity and gas, and, of course, Prince Wine Store. You can connect with us via Instagram, Facebook and Twitter. And if you want our show notes delivered to you every week, hit the sign-up button on Facebook or in our show notes. Or send us an email, which is feedback at don'tshootpod.com.au, and we'll subscribe you. And, Corrie... Grind my gears, Carol. <laughs>